turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you are not accustomed to getting around the Bible and you're using one that was in the pew in front of you, Matthew chapter 5, where we're going to be reading, is on page 810 of that Bible. We just came through a week where it is fitting for us to just take a moment uh, today not to, to, to be thankful. I mean, we just thank the Lord for the cross, for the love He gave. We, so many, peop- many people, if you see them on social media, uh, take each day to express something for which they are thankful that particular day. Um, and, and certainly this week, we as a nation rightly expressed our thanks for those men and women who have served and are serving our country in the armed forces. And we should be thankful. And I look around and I see the faces of many who did serve. And I am thankful for you. And we are thankful for you. And there are those who are serving even now. And we thank God for them and we pray for them. Uh, the, The sacrifice and the willingness to leave family and friends and go and serve your nation is a noble thing, and it is good, and so we are thankful. So thank you to all of you who have served. Amen? Amen. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 13 to 16, and then we'll pray together. Matthew five thirteen to 16. You might have thought I was going to read the Beatitudes every week until we finish the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to move on. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13, this is what the Spirit of God says to us. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, now as we come to your word, we pray that by your spirit we will see and love and believe your truth. We are your people. I am your servant. Give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. For the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray it. Amen. What is the Christian's role in society. Are we to be active? Are we to be passive? Are we to be engaged or are we to be withdrawn? And if we are to be involved, what sort of involvement should we have? Does it matter how we conduct ourselves as we engage with the world? What's the goal? of such involvement. 
These are important questions, and Christians may answer them differently, but whatever opportunities or capacities the Lord has given us, one thing is certain. God doesn't want His people to try and escape the world, to have a kind of monastic life, to avoid interaction with unbelievers at all costs, to live in a Christian bubble. No. God actually wants us engaged in the world. How we do it matters. Why we do it matters. But God wants us engaged. He does not want us withdrawn. After all, we follow a Savior who did not keep a dark world at arm's length, did He? He saw the darkness of the world. He knew the darkness of the world. And yet He entered a dark world, to live among us, to live with us. In fact, he was rightly accused and gained quite a reputation for his involvement with the world, didn't he? There's a time in Matthew 11 where his reputation comes out. Look at him, they say, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, that's actually good news, isn't it? Because if that weren't true, none of us could sing, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Jesus is still a friend of sinners today. He laid down His life so that you, we who are enemies of God, could be the friends of God, could be the friends of Jesus Christ. And that can be true of you. Maybe you aren't a Christian. Well, Jesus has done all that is necessary to forgive your sin and make you a friend of God. You see, even though Jesus knew the world's darkness and He did speak clearly of the condemnation of judgment that was coming, still Jesus wasn't satisfied to bark at it from a distance. He didn't stay up in heaven and wag His finger, as it were. He came near and He brought light. And here He calls the disciples to do the same. I mean, we're about to enter, not to skip Thanksgiving as so many people do, uh, it today, but it, we're about to enter the season in which we think about the incarnation of Jesus. The fact that He came and dwelt among us, and He calls His disciples to dwell among in the world a particular way. He calls us to be light. He basically says that true Christians. glorify God by influencing the world for Christ. That's what we actually see here. That, That Christians, true Christians, glorify God by influencing the world for Christ. Now we all know we're not going to get to every part of the world, but our little parts of the world. The world, as the Bible often speaks of it, a world in rebellion against God. So let's think about this. How does Jesus actually say this? Well, First of all, he speaks of the Christian's identity. Now, I use that word identity with some hesitation and a little bit of fear and trembling because it is a popular subject today. It's a popular idea today to speak about our identity in Christ. But so many do it wrongly, do it misunderstanding the Scriptures or misusing the Scriptures in order to build self-esteem when the whole point of life is actually to have esteem for and obedience to Jesus Christ. 
Not to have think highly of myself, but to think highly of Him. Not to have confidence in myself, but to have confidence in Him. Not to think I am great, but to think He is great. And therein comes the strength to actually live. But even still, even with all this difficulty of using the word identity, I can't come up with anything better because that's what Jesus is doing. In fact, you could say the entire Sermon on the Mount gives us the identifying marks of those who follow Jesus, of those who are a Christian, of those who belong to His kingdom. And what Jesus says here as part of that identity is this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Being salt and being light is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. I don't know if you noticed this, but these aren't commands. Jesus is not commanding them to be salt. He is not commanding them to be light. He doesn't say, you shall be salt. You must be light. Now, do what I say. No, 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 no. What he says is, you are. When you think about it in terms of grammar, these are not imperatives. These are indicatives. These are statements of what is. Christians are salt and light. Those who follow Jesus simply are. So we need to think about that. If we are to understand how we are to live, we should understand what Jesus is talking about here. So first, think about salt. There are two main uses of salt. There's preservation. Salt is used to preserve. And then there's also flavor. So when you think about preservation, in that day, there, there was no refrigeration. So the way to preserve food, especially meat, was to use salt. And Christians are to be preserving agents in society. We are meant to restrain decay. Okay, The curse of sin in the world continually decays. Sin has a putrefying effect on society, doesn't it? Now, if you're not sure about what that means... If you've ever come across a refrigerator that's been closed for a while and still has food in it, and then you open it, and the smell punches you in the face, you know what putrefying means, because that's the smell of putrefication. And that's what sin does to the world. The decay and the stench of sin is everywhere, and Christians are to slow that decay. We slow it by speaking for righteousness. We slow it by speaking against sin. We speak it by living a righteous life. Now, last week I spoke about how the Christian can have a convicting effect on others, and while that may draw opposition, it can also restrain. It can slow decay so that the joke that would have been told at Thanksgiving is not told simply because you're there. That the, 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 the possible compromise in ethics doesn't happen because you were in the meeting deciding how to respond. 
the sexual innuendo about a coworker or a classmate or a neighbor is silenced simply because people know that you're a Christian. I've experienced this in my own family. God can use Christians to be a kind of general God consciousness for unbelievers. And that's a good thing. Look, obviously, our greatest interest is to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And obviously, sinful people are going to act sinfully. I mean, we do, and we, we still sin, and we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, those who are still enslaved to sin are going to do what they're enslaved to do. But it doesn't mean that, there, that God intends there to be no restraining effect. In fact, this is what He's ordained the state to be, isn't it? God ordains the state to promote what is good and to punish what is evil, to be a restraining influence in the world. And in a much different way, we as Christians are meant to be a restraining influence. I wonder if that kind of thing happens when you're around. Does your presence preserve? Now, salt not only preserves, it also adds flavor. But if you add the wrong amount, right, you either won't taste it at all or you'll be overwhelmed and disgusted by it, right? Uh, In college, uh, I I remember being down to my last few dollars. Now, that would actually be a number of times in college, but I remember a particular time that dad's check that was meant to go to my food account at school had come but it arrived in the mail on Saturday and it could not go in until the office opened on Monday. So I literally just had a couple of dollars left to get me through and it's Sunday night and I'm starving so I go to a mostly empty dining hall and I get the only thing I can afford, mashed potatoes, all right? And I get this glorious pile of mashed potatoes. The sweet lady behind the counter was so merciful to me, she gave me an extra plop of mashed potatoes. And that's what they did. They plopped on the plate. And I sat down and I took a bland bite and then I decided this needs salt. So I pick up the salt shaker and I go to add it, at which time I learned that some unknown student had pranked me. And the lid of the salt shaker had been unscrewed. And so an avalanche of salt is now covering all of my plops of mashed potatoes on the plate. So, I'm still hungry. So, I do my best to scrape off all that I can. I endure my mashed potato feast, and I wash out the taste as quickly as possible, (laughs) drinking gallons upon gallons of water to try to get the salt taste out. Now, friends, our saltiness in the world should not be like that avalanche of salt. It should not be heavy-handed. Because, you see, while our friends may endure it, they'll be quick to want to wash the taste out of their mouths. They may even just scrape you right out of their inner circle. Now, no matter how you act or what you say or how kind you are, That could happen anyway, right? We talked about that last week. But 
We do want to be winsome in our witness. As much as it depends on us, we want to leave people with a good taste in their mouths. Even when they disagree with biblical truth. And then on the flip side, our saltiness also shouldn't be imperceptible. People should taste the saltiness of our lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We shouldn't think that a couple of shakes from the salt shaker in a swimming pool is going to change everything. There should be a taste, a flavor, even if they can't identify it. You are salt. And then Jesus says, you are light. Now, of the two images, this is the one we're probably more familiar with, right? Jesus calls himself the light of the world in John 8, 12. He says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we who follow Jesus have the light of life. We are meant to be the light of Jesus Christ. The rest of the New Testament affirms this kind of imagery. So that in 1 Peter 2... Peter writes that God has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. It's a familiar image. And what is it that light does? Well, light illuminates Christians are an illuminating influence. Christians are meant to illuminate truth and righteousness and the reality of God's existence and the power of the gospel. And ultimately, we are meant to shine light on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our light should be pointed, as it were, that when others see that light... Ultimately, it is meant to take minds to Jesus. Now, we certainly do this with words, don't we? We speak words that are meant to illuminate. We share the gospel. We may even um, uh, draw attention to inconsistencies in the way that the world thinks and the way that the world approaches morality. So, for example, we might in a conversation with a friend, say, isn't it interesting how some people on one hand will do anything to stop violence against children, which is a good thing, and yet on the other hand will stop at nothing to protect acts of violence against children in the womb. You see, that's inconsistent thinking. It's inconsistent to only be concerned about the lives that I want to be concerned about, that I think matter. If we're going to be concerned about life, we should be concerned about all of life, right? Right. So that kind of thing. And even how we conduct those conversations should actually be light. They should shine with the light of Christ. Of course, we don't shy away from speaking truth, but we do it in love and in grace and quite often with patience. I mean, how many of us changed our minds the very first time we heard something? Very often it takes multiple conversations over time. And we should remember that increasing the volume of our voice 
doesn't increase the truthfulness of our argument. That being harsh isn't being holy. That belittling the other person is not shining with the light of Christ. Those kinds of things. We can be light in our words, but isn't it interesting Jesus doesn't even say a word about words here, does He? He doesn't focus on words. What does He focus on? It's not a rhetorical question. Look down at your Bible. Tell me, what does He focus on here? What is the light? Good works. It's not words, it's works. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Christian light shines in Christian deeds, not just formal ministry kinds of things, but all good deeds, deeds of compassion and and kindness and mercy and generosity. They shine with the light of a compassionate and kind and merciful and generous Savior. That is what they're meant to do. John Stott said, good works embody the good news of Jesus' love which we proclaim. Without them, our gospel loses its credibility and God His honor. Christians are salt. Christians are light. And when you think about those two things, you know what else interests me? Is that neither of those two things exist for themselves. Salt exists for what it is preserving or flavoring. Light exists to shine on something. I mean, how many times has your mother told you not to look directly into the sun, right? It's meant to show us something else, not itself. So we, too, as Christians, don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the sake of the world, for the world that Jesus calls us to serve, calls us to go into. That is the Christian's identity. Then the Christian's warning. Let's look at the second thing here, the Christian's warning. While Jesus says that Christians are salt and light, it seems these identities can fade, become compromised, lost, invisible, even useless. Listen to verse, uh, the second half of verse Uh, after the you are the salt of the earth. Jesus says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then verse, the end of verse 14 and verse 15, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. You see, we may actually have a, a bit of trouble understanding precisely this warning because what we have in our lives is refined table salt. When it comes to salt, we have refined table salt, and we have light everywhere, right? Light is everywhere, from the screen on your phone to the glow of a city to the fact that we should just be thankful for the men who made sure this flickering light was fixed this very week. See, you just say it, it happens. I named it and I claimed it and it happened. I mean, I just tell you. But it was great. It's just a wonderful thing to to be thankful for. But salt and light, it's hard for us to imagine its importance in that day. It's also hard for us to imagine the idea of salt losing its saltiness. 
right? Because, I mean, you scientists will know better than I do that sodium chloride, salt, is a very stable compound. It doesn't just change willy-nilly. It's very stable. But in that day, you see, the salt that was used was actually part, uh, wasn't pure refined salt. It was one of a number of components in a white powder that would be harvested by the Dead Sea. And of all of the components, sodium chloride, the, the salt, was the most soluble, which means that it could be easily washed out. And what was left would look like salt. It would look like white powder, but it would not act like salt. It would preserve nothing. It would flavor nothing. It would become useless, and you may as well throw it out and make it part of the walking path. That's actually what Jesus is saying here. It's good for nothing except to throw out and to trample under feet if it loses its saltiness. And light? Well, the lighting of the lamp was critical. In that day, I mean, because many of us have never really experienced darkness, real, true darkness, where you can put your hand here and you can't see it. Most of us have not experienced that at all. But, but I want you to imagine how silly it would be in a power outage, let's say, to take out your phone and to turn on the flashlight and then put the phone in your pocket and walk around thinking all was well. Well, that would just be silly, wouldn't it? Well, the covered light is just as useless as saltless salt. Nobody would do that. Nobody would turn on their flashlight and think, oh, the best place for this is in my pocket. Just like nobody would light a, a lamp in that day and then put a mixing bowl over it. It's useless that way. It gives no light. And what Jesus is warning by speaking in this way is that we must guard against such uselessness. He's telling us, don't be one who looks like the salt of the earth, but is as useless as the dust on the ground. Don't compromise your faith. Don't have your Christian faith washed away by allowing it to be watered down by the thoughts of the world. Don't become as useless as a lit flashlight in your pocket. Don't hide your faith. Don't privatize it. Don't reduce your faith to a quiet time in the morning, church behind closed doors on Sunday, and listening to podcasts in your car. Don't reduce your faith to that. Don't be a flashlight in a pocket. Don't lose your saltiness. Preserve a decaying world. Flavor a bland world. Light a dark world. Or you'll become useless. Useless in God's kingdom. Useless in the work of the gospel. Dear friends, none of us were saved in order to become useless. So we must heed Jesus' warning. The last thing here is the Christian's goal. Why is it 
that Christians are salt? Why is it that Christians are light? Why avoid uselessness? What are we aiming at? Well, Jesus answers in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, if you read it carefully, you will see that there are two goals. There's an immediate goal, and then there's an ultimate goal. Okay? The immediate goal, Jesus says, is that we are to let our light shine so that they may see your good works. We're to shine our light so that people will see it. Now, that can be confusing at first, can it? Because if you just, just let your eye glance over to chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to hit the fast-forward button in the sermon and look. Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, wait a second. That sounds like the opposite of what he just said. He just said, let your light shine before others so that they may see. What is going on here, Jesus? Can you please explain? Well, he's not going to come show us the grammar of Greek, but let me help. When you, the word that's used to be seen in chapter 6, verse 1, is a word that isn't just about observation. It's not just about seeing something in a very eh way, like I saw it snowing outside. It's to see and then to admire the one who is seen. It's to see and be drawn to them. It's to see and then make much of the one who is doing whatever is seen. In other words, for those of you who are under a certain age, the to be seen in Matthew 6.1 is the reason why people have TikTok accounts. All right? It's the reason why people, kids, long to become professional YouTubers. It is to be seen. It is to be admired. It is to be lifted up. It is to be made much of. It is so that when you happen to bump into me, you think, oh, there's the guy who does the thing. That's what's happening in chapter 6, verse 1. What's happening here in chapter 5, verse 16 is not uh, a TikTok motivation, all right? What's happening here in chapter 5, verse 16 is that you see something and you think, huh. It just it catches your attention. It, it provokes thinking, but not, not about that person necessarily. It just provokes thoughts. It catches your attention. You wonder, why, why that? What is it that motivates his humility? I mean, I'd be bragging about that promotion. How, how, did, how did she respond with mercy to that hateful person? I mean, I would have given him an earful right away. How is he so patient with his child? I would have blown up at the kid by now. 
How can she forgive her husband for that? I mean, I'd be giving him the silent treatment, having him sleep on the couch. He'd be in the doghouse for a long time if he tried something like that on me. You see, our unbelieving children and neighbors and co-workers and extended family should see our lives and see our good works and not be able to shake it. But be provoked by it. Christians in that sense should live provocative lives. Our lives should provoke questions that are not easily answered. It should provoke, they should provoke curiosity. They should provoke spiritual interest. That's what Jesus is saying here. Something about that life doesn't fit the way I have thought about life all these years. Something there is different. Something there needs to be explained. Ah, but that's only the immediate goal. That's only the proximate goal. That's only the first goal. It's the first step toward the ultimate goal. Which is what Jesus says. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the ultimate goal. Glory to our Father in heaven. That they would see such works and ultimately by God's help and by God's grace and by the work of the Holy Spirit... Their world would begin to turn upside down. They'd stop looking for glory for themselves and start giving glory to God. They'd stop longing to be in the spotlight and start shining the spotlight on the Lord. That's what would happen. The most basic way I think I can say it is this. Christians are salt and Christians are light so that the world will taste and see that the Lord is good. That's why we do what we do. That's why we engage the world. Because it is ultimately not about us. It is about something far bigger than us. We can be forgotten. It doesn't matter. What matters is that God is glorified. Who cares if the name Gray Road Baptist Church is lodged in the memory of anyone? What matters is the name of Jesus Christ. What matters is the name and reputation of God which we can promote through our words and through our lives in all of the different circles that God puts us in. Don't you want to be part of glorifying God like that? Don't you want the result of your life to be that the people around you taste and see that the Lord is good? Now look, as I thought about this, I actually couldn't help but think of so many of you and the ways in which you are being what Jesus says here, salt and light. Yes, we all need to grow in it. Yes, nobody is actually perfect salt or perfect light. 
But I just, I took our membership role and I just slowly worked through it. And over and over and over again, I stopped as my mind considered the ways I've seen God use us as salt and light in various ways. I've seen it as we've interacted about your workplace, as you've sought to glorify God by preserving what's good when unrighteousness is promoted, by speaking truth when the lies of the world are being embraced, by serving your coworkers with no thought of actually any kind of return, just so they get a taste of Jesus. I actually, and in particularly thought, I mean, it was striking to me uh, how many people in our congregation are in the realm of, ed- of education in some way. There are at least 16 of you. I would name you all, but I can't actually do it by memory. And I would name you all, but I fear leaving someone out. And I don't want to do that. But that's amazing, isn't it? What an opportunity to glorify God. Sometimes in very hard and awful conditions. Brought on by various factors that may occur but all seeking to teach children, to care for children, to be salt and light with children and with their parents as God gives opportunity and in various ways. It just encouraged my heart to think about it. I thought about how the Lord has used so many of you as salt and light in your own families. I've, I, I thought about specific, specific people in our congregation who are always showing mercy and compassion and serving, dying to themselves and serving unbelieving family members in order to show them Christ and to speak to them of Christ. I thought of stories I'd been told, not on purpose, not to brag, but just stories of interactions in your neighborhoods with your geographical neighbors those who live closest to you, of, of you loving on other people's children, of you caring about their needs, of you going and serving them, and actually being a real friend to those who aren't in the Christian faith, not because they're an evangelism project to you, but because God is glorified when we are salt and light. And then even in our Christmas gift giving, year by year, we've been able to be salt and light with children we never meet. And this year we get to do it again, honestly, with kids that are in one of the worst circumstances they will ever face, being separated from their parents. Because no matter how bad home is, it's still home. You still want mom. You still want dad. And we have an opportunity to glorify God by being Christ-like, by giving an undeserved gift to those who are suffering and are never able to repay us for it. Doesn't that just point your mind to the gospel? The idea of a gift being given that isn't deserved and isn't earned and can never be repaid. That's what God has given us in Jesus Christ. What a blessing to see all of this salt and all of this light in all of you. 
Now we sit here, and this morning we're, as it were, we're in the salt shaker, right? Here we are, Sunday morning worship, in the salt shaker, and we will pray in just a bit, and we'll be finished, and we'll have conversations, and then we'll go from here, and what do we do? We get out of the salt shaker, and we go to be salt in the world. We're here, as it were, to recharge our batteries through worship, through fellowship, so that with God's help we can shine as lights in the world this week. And friends, I want to encourage you, as you consider our world, as you consider our culture, as we consider our city, as we consider the state of the family, as we consider the state of the church, now is not the time to lose our saltiness. Now is not the time to hide our light. Now is not the time to slide down the slippery slope into compromising our faith and into concealing our faith. Now is not the time to become useless. The world needs salt. The world needs light. And the God-ordained world in which you live and all of the circles of that world that you encounter in any given week needs salt and needs light. And you, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so let us renew our commitment right here and right now to glorify God by influencing the God-ordained part of the world we live in for the sake of Christ, with Christ, showing them Christ, speaking Christ, demonstrating who He is, following in His steps. Will you do that? Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, acknowledging the weightiness of such a call on our lives that in bringing us out of darkness, you have made us light. We are light in the Lord. in bringing us out of a bland and tasteless life that would lead to an eternity of hell, you have made us the salt of the earth. Not for our own sake, but so that those around us will see our good works and glorify you, our Father in heaven. Lord, we pray that you will give us grace to be salt, to be light as you have said we are to preserve, to flavor, to shine for the glory of Jesus. Oh God, guard us against uselessness. Keep us from watering down our witness by accepting lies of the world, immorality of the world. Keep us, guard us from being useless 
so that we don't hide our faith. We pray that our light will shine and our salt will be tasted in such a way that Jesus Christ will be seen as the glorious Savior of the world. And we ask it all in his name. Amen.